Amen. Well, welcome to, uh, to GBC. Thank you so much for being here this morning. My name is Mike Madry, and I am the family pastor uh, here at church. And um, West is uh, suffering for the Lord on the slopes of Colorado right now. So be praying for him. He and Annie Kate and some friends went out and went skiing. So, uh, so I get to share with you today, which I'm really excited about. Uh, really grateful for the opportunity to do that. Um, you guys uh, have mastered the clock so way to go. Well done. You're to be commended. You may have thought you were coming to the nine o'clock service. Just, I think, just don't tell anybody if that's what you thought, because I'm not sure about how exactly the time changes. But this is like daylight saving time, right? Daylight saving time. And I heard last night on the radio coming in uh, to the house that, that it's daylight saving time. Do you know this? It's not daylight fa- savings time. Did you know that? It's something I learned. This is something I did not know. All this time, I've been calling this daylight savings time. And I'm sure I'm wrong. But Zach, did you know this? You, you did not, you're an elder? You didn't know. So I don't know what that means, to be honest with you. It's daylight saving time. And so if anyone knows what that means later on, come educate me. Come tell me what that means, because I don't really don't uh, know. But anyway, congratulations. Thanks for being here to worship also means that you really don't have spring break plans, so, but I hope you get out. <laughs> it was great. Um, I, uh, I am a golfer, and uh, I am not a good golfer uh, at all. I do enjoy the game quite a bit and uh, have a lot of fun when I do have the opportunity to play, but I am not really very good. Um, uh, I, I actually shoot usually somewhere a couple of strokes um, if, if the par is supposed to be four, I usually shoot about a six or seven, something like that. So the scorecard says four. I usually am not anywhere near that. Um, but I do enjoy playing. It's a rich man's sport. I confess you have to be rich in time, especially sometimes rich in money if you want to play a decent course, right? Um, but there's something in golf, uh, similar to baseball, similar to tennis, called hitting the sweet spot. And uh, hitting the sweet spot is a really wonderful experience. Happens to me maybe once a round or twice a round when I get to go play. And uh, hitting the sweet spot is, is just, a, it's just something that happens where you hit the ball just right. Now, Mimi Epps is our resident professional golfer here on our staff. And she is really, really good. If you ever have a chance to go play golf with her or see her play, just watch her play. Um, it's really a treat because she is really good at it. Um, but she tells me that hitting the sweet spot, I asked her, I said, what, is that, what does that really mean exactly when you hit the sweet spot? And she said, she said it's a feeling that you get, and uh, it's something that is just, the word she used was pure. She said it's just pure. And another word that she used for it was, it's crisp. And when you hit it, you just know it. And it's what every golfer wants to feel when they hit, when they hit that shot. They just want to feel that that's like, oh. It just feels right, right? So today, I told Michael I wouldn't hit his new iPod over here, by the way, so I practiced. Um, But uh, today we're going to look at hitting the sweet spot of discipleship, and that's what we're going to look at. So if you grab your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 17, and we're going to look at hitting the sweet spot of discipleship. Luke 17, verse 1 is where we'll start. Uh, Jesus takes 10 sentences. He takes 10 sentences to cover what volumes have been written about this idea 
And he tells us what it means to hit the sweet spot of discipleship. And this applies to all of us. It applies to everyone that's here. Uh, What we're not going to talk about today is I'm not going to share with you about how to disciple, uh, the mechanics of discipleship, what a small group should look like, or uh, meeting with somebody one-on-one or something like that, how much time you should spend, how often you should meet, what kind of curriculum you should cover, those types of things. That's not what we're going to look at today. That would be like Daniel, Ernest, and Mimi Epps, and Blaine Hooper's area. So they can help you with those things. Today we're going to look at four traits that, that Jesus shares with us about what it means to be a disciple maker. What, what four traits that a disciple maker must have. And here's the thing. This is really critical for us here at GBC. Because we're calling all of you at our church at some point to step into leadership, Right? We're not just asking you to come and sit and consume. We're asking you to actually step into leadership within our church. That we're saying we want you to come here, spend a year, come and be part of a growth group, come and invest your life there, get some foundational information, get some foundational truths from the scriptures, get some foundational doctrine as you come here and invest yourself in a growth group and be led by others. Let them invest in you. Then we want you to be part of a community group. And invest in a community, someone who, a group of people who know you and you know them. So invest another year spending time in that world here at Grace and take that time. Maybe you do that for a year, maybe you do that for two. But at some point, what we ask you to do is then step into leadership. Step into a position where you're actually leading others. Where you take your life and you say, I'm going to invest my time and energy into the life of someone else. I'm going to help them mature. I'm going to help them grow in the faith. I'm going to help them know Jesus more deeply and mature in godliness. So that's what we're asking you to do. When I was working with high school kids, I'd take the seniors in high school, and I'd say, gentlemen, my expectation of you is that you go off to college next year, and you learn how to be a college kid. You take your freshman year, you figure out how to go to class. Don't pull a 1-4. You go into class, and you go and spend time there. You study, learn how to be a student. And you find a place to go and worship. You find a church home. You find someone who's going to invest your life in you. And you take that for a year. After your first year, I want you to come back and I want you to find your sophomore year. Find someone to invest your life in. Find a ministry to give your life away. I want you to disciple young men. I want to see that in your lives. And when you come back as a sophomore, I want you to come back and tell me who your guys are. And I expected them to come back and get together with me and say, this is who I'm spending time with. So that's the call. That's the call for us. We want you at some point to be able to show us your men. Who are they? Ladies, who are the young ladies you're investing your life in? So this is a high calling. So let's look at Luke 17, verses 1 and 2. It says this, He said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. The possibility that the Pharisees were kind of hanging on the fringes as he spoke. But Jesus is really focused on his disciples and what he's about to tell them. And he says to them, temptations to sin are sure to come. He gives them a warning. 
New American Standard Translation says, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. Jesus says that without question, in a sinful world with sinful people, there are going to be folks who could potentially lead you astray, even within the church. Temptations to sin, stumbling blocks will come, Jesus says. He uses the phrase temptations to sin. It's usually translated stumbling blocks. This is one proper noun in the Greek language, and it's the word scandalon. Scandalon. A scandalon means an instrument of deceit. It's an instrument of deceit. When we were kids, we used to do something called playing outside. It was a great experience. We made up all kinds of games. We had just a fantastic time, especially in the summertime. We would just run through the neighborhood, and we were expected to come home when the lights went on, on the light posts. And so we would, try, we would do all kinds of things. We'd try to catch all kinds of critters and animals and do things. And so we would build a trap as a kid. And what we'd do is we'd take a box, and then we'd get a stick of some kind, and we'd get some, some string, and we would tie it to that stick, and we'd prop that box up, and we'd put some bait underneath the box. We'd hope that some bird would come by or something like that and take the bait, and we'd be over there, and we'd pull that string out and pull that stick so the box would fall on whatever that critter was, and we would capture them. And then we would be really, really kind and sweet to them. <clears throat> that stick is the scandalon. It's an instrument of deceit is what technically that stick is. And Jesus says, scandalon will come. 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul says to Timothy, in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Paul warns Timothy in 2 Tim 2.17 of Hymenaeus and Philetus who had swerved from the truth and upset some people's faith. 1 John chapter 4.1, John says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jesus says that false teachers will come. Matthew chapter 13, they, there will be wheat among the tares. But he says here to the disciples, it better not be you. He says, woe, it better not be you. And that woe in the Greek means woe, it better not be you. That's what it means. Woe to the one who misleads. Woe to the one who tempts my children. Matthew chapter 18, 6 is a parallel passage to this particular passage. And he says that those little ones are young believers. He says, you be careful taking care of the young believers among you. So it doesn't matter if you're 5 years old, 12 years old, 30 years old, 65, 85. He says, you take care of those who believe in me, those precious ones. You be careful. Ephesians 1.5 says that anyone who is a believer in Christ is an adopted son or daughter of God. So God gives us a warning right here. He says, I'm giving you my babies to lead and to impact. And he gives us this high standard. 2 Tim 2.15 says you are a workman. We're to be workmen, rightly handling or rightly dividing the word of truth that we don't spear off to the left or to the right. So our first quality that Jesus gives to us is that we need to be true. We need to have integrity. That our words match our actions and our actions match our words. 
We are orthodox, a straight opinion. We hold to the ancient truths of the early church and the early church fathers and the apostles. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to be brilliant. We don't have to be handsome. We don't have to be wealthy. But we walk straight in orthodoxy. Our words match our life. I have to be careful. My wife and I, Libba and I, when uh, in the early or late 80s and early 90s, we moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to go on Young Life staff. And every day, uh, I would take Taylor and Travis, our little guys, when they were in elementary school, I would take them to school. And I would drive down I-10, and I would get off exit and turn right on Blue Bonnet Boulevard. We'd go down to Highland Road and go down to their school. And, uh, and, and when I would take that road, I would drive down Blue Bonnet, and I would drive through uh, the middle of a beautiful complex called the Jimmy Swaggart Ministries Complex. Now, uh, Jimmy Swaggart, back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and early 90s, was a famous evangelist. And uh, he had a really huge nationwide following on TV, upwards of 300 TV stations that broadcast their worship time. And uh, he had an international following. Um, and uh, he worked within the Assemblies of God. Um, but uh, there was also a deal that he created this Bible college on this campus, and it was beautiful. But when I would turn down Blue Bonnet Boulevard at this point, there was a huge 10-story concrete building and it was unfinished, and it was boarded up. It was part of the complex there, and it was a great testament to me to be careful because it was not finished. The reason it wasn't finished is because in the late 80s, uh, Jimmy Swagger was caught with a prostitute on two different occasions, and, uh, and it crippled his ministry. It was a scandal. It made the papers nationwide, and uh, it affected hundreds of people. And uh, especially those young people that wanted to come to college there and get some certificate in biblical studies. And so I would drive, and every day I would drive past that, and I would see this testament, and I would be reminded the warning, Mike, you have got to be careful with what you do. You have got to watch what you do in your life. You're working with college kids and with high school kids. And this man's life did not match up with his words. And so there was scandal, and his impact was never the same. So we have to be careful. This is serious business to God. Look at verse 2. He says it's so serious. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. He says it'd be better if they took this millstone, a big, big round thing that looked like a wheel made out of stone with a hole in the middle of it that they would walk around some base and grind grain with. And the Greeks and the Syrians and the Romans would take those big millstones and they would tie them around a really heinous criminal's neck and cast them into a lake or into the sea to execute them. It was a form of execution. Jesus is saying it would be better to die a lousy death than to come under God's judgment for leading a believer astray in deed or in doctrine. For a non-believer, that could suffer condemnation to hell. For believers, we could suffer some discipline or some chastisement from the Lord in this life and possibly the loss of reward in the next. So we have to be careful. So what do we do to be true? What are some things practically that we can put into our lives? Some of these things you know, we just need to revisit them. The first one, let's make sure that there are people who know you, 
Let's make sure that there are people who know the real you, that you are genuinely accountable and honest with some folks, some people who are close and that know you. There's two men that I meet with every Thursday morning, and we get together, and these are godly men who, who know me. And we get together for breakfast, and we share life together. We've been getting together for four or five years now. And these are men that I trust and I can share my life with so they understand what's going on with me, the good and the bad. And so we meet on a regular basis so that I'm accountable to those guys and I trust them and their input into me. The men that I have known over my life who have fallen, who have led others astray, are men that that they did not let people in to know them. They had secrets. So we have to be careful. So my challenge Make sure there are folks who know you that you're getting with on a regular basis. The second thing is, let's passionately pursue the truth of God's word so that we can understand what is true and avoid false teaching. Let's let's do that. Let's take in the word of God. The way that you know what false teaching is is by knowing truth. So let's study the scriptures to show ourselves approved. Let's don't just take little spit baths in the scriptures. Let's immerse ourselves in the scriptures. Let's take the time and the effort and energy to do that. They said of Peyton Manning, quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts, that he had his entire playbook for the Colts in his head, that he knew every play, front and back, he knew it cold, and he had it in his head. He didn't have to look at it, didn't have to reference anything. That's what we need to look at when it comes to Scripture, that I know that one year from now I'm going to know this book better than I do today that I want to look at my life and say, over my lifespan, I want to become a master of 66 books of Scripture. That's my goal. That's my challenge. So we have to be careful. Let's, let's let other people know us. Let's be passionate about knowing Scripture. And then finally, let's don't abuse the freedom in Christ that we do have. That's one thing that I love about grace. Since I've been here, I hear that consistently, and I love it. It's such an encouragement for me that we have freedom and joy in the Lord, right? And that's such a great thing because of God's grace that he's poured out on me that I have freedom. I have freedom to love people. I have freedom to do the things he's called me to do. It is fantastic. But let's be careful that we don't take our freedoms and cause a weaker or younger, less mature brother to stumble. That's Romans 14. That's 1 Corinthians 8 that I don't take my freedom to such an extent that others look at my life and call me into account. I have to be careful. When we were in Baton Rouge, we were working with high school, college kids. And uh, in in Louisiana, it was kind of a marker whether or not uh, you were a believer or not that related to drinking. And no matter where you fall on the side of that, I had to watch what I did. We had to watch what we did. So we didn't keep beer or alcohol in our refrigerator because we had high school kids and college kids at our house all the time. And so I didn't want to say, hey, go in and grab a Dr. Pepper and have them open up the fridge and see alcohol. Now, I was free. I was an adult. I could go, if I mowed the yards 100 degrees out, I could go in and get a, a beer if I wanted to and have something to drink to cool off. I could do that. I had the freedom But I didn't want to put anything in front of those young people's lives that they could look at and have a call against me, right or wrong. I didn't want to put anything in front of them that would be a stumbling block. So we said, we're we're not going to put that in our fridge. They can drink Dr. Pepper. If God intended me to drink beer, he wouldn't have invented Dr. Pepper. I can tell you that. (laughs) So let's be careful. 
let's live above reproach. We don't want folks to have a call against us. So the first thing that Jesus says here is let's be true, number one. Then he says in verse three, an interesting statement, pay attention to yourselves. Be on your guard. Pay attention to yourselves. Now that can go with verses one and two, or it can go with verses three and four when you look at it. I think it could go with both. He's basically just saying, take a look at yourselves. Pay attention to what you're doing. Evaluate where you are. Be careful. Look at what you're doing, Jesus says. In verses three and four, he gives us the second trait that we have to exercise divine forgiveness. Look at three and four. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. With any kind of leadership responsibility that we have, any kind of authority that we're given, we have to always remember to extend forgiveness and love to those folks who struggle, right? We have to be really, really careful with what we do, especially for us. Here at GBC, we believe very, very strongly in the priesthood of believers. We believe very strongly of you guys stepping up and ministering to the people around you, spending your life and investing your life in the lives of others and leading them. We believe very strongly in that concept. But when we do that, there are times where we can rub the fur the wrong way, right? Where we can get sideways with people sometimes. We need to be able to go to them and ask forgiveness. We need to be able to receive them if they've offended us or hurt us in some way. That we're careful, that we're quick to extend forgiveness. Well, he says in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. That sounds harsh. I don't think it's really meant to be that harsh. I think it's just meant to be intentional. He says, but let's restore them. Let's do this intentional kind of rebuking in the spirit of restoration. Everything that we always do in this arena has to do with restoring a person and loving them well right there. This word rebuke uh, in the Greek, the root word of that is the word time, and it means honor. Timotheos, or Timothy, is the honor of God. The word here uh, for rebuke is the word epitimeo. And the little prefix epi means to place on top of or to place on. And timeo is the word honor. So the idea is here is to place honor on one thing over another. That a person in authority, a person who's leading, uh, judges what is true, takes from the word of God and the scriptures what is true, and goes to a brother a brother who's possibly in sin and says, this is honorable. This is not honorable in what I see in your life. And the scriptures say, this is what is honorable that you need to be about. So he places honor on what is honorable. A great example of that, we had a young couple who went through our uh, premarital mentoring program. When they started, they were living together. And uh, Seth Adams on our staff um, knew the young man from the men's ministry and his involvement there. And he went to him and he said, my friend, uh, the scriptures give us an idea of what it means to be in right relationship with a woman, uh, especially one that you're going to be marrying. And uh, the call from scripture is that you live in purity. The call is that from Ephesians chapter five, that your relationship now and after you get married is supposed to be a picture to the world of what Christ's love for the church really looks like. 
And so I want to call you to take a different stance. I want to call you to separate as far as moving out from each other and to live in purity until the day you're married and you get to celebrate on your wedding night. And to this young man's credit, he took that. He said, yeah, we want to change. We want to be different. And they worked at, at making that different. And they moved out from where they were with each other. And I was so proud of them and what they chose to do. But that's a great picture of what I think Jesus is talking about. That when we rebuke someone, when we epitomeo them, which is what Seth did, that we do that in love. We do that with a spirit of restoration in mind. Now, we don't whitewash sin, and that's where it becomes tricky with us, right? We have to be really careful. We're not going to do this with someone that we don't know. We don't want to do that when we walk in the doors over here and we followed somebody and they were driving 85 miles an hour in a 60 and go, hey, no, that's, not the, that's not the spirit of what we're talking about here at all. We want to do this with people that we know well, that are friends, that are close to us, right? But we don't want to whitewash over things, okay? We do readily offer forgiveness when there is repentance. Our general rule really comes from Ephesians 4.32. We forgive as Christ forgave us. We restore in a spirit of gentleness. We can't be harsh. You know those, those Christians who are harsh. And we have to be careful. I think we have to especially be careful when it comes to parenting. As parents, I had to be careful as a parent. We be careful with our kids. We minister truth to them in kindness and in gentleness and with, with some leniency when it's appropriate. Y'all, I've, I've seen people run their kids off because they're so right and they're so dogmatic and they're so nitpicky. The kids just want to escape as soon as they possibly can. And I've seen that. We have to be really careful. Our, sometimes our parents, we want our kids to be perfect. And we want them to be successful, whatever that means. And we have to be really, really careful that we don't miss caring for their hearts in the midst of what we're doing when we want them to be right as well. Well, my wife, Libba, has a great phrase that I really love that captures both of these things. Her phrase is this, if I offer grace without truth, I deceive. If I offer grace without truth, I deceive. If I offer truth, Without grace, I destroy. But if I offer a balance of grace and truth, I define bold love. And I think that's great. If I offer grace without truth, I deceive. If I offer truth without grace, I destroy. But if I offer a balance of grace and truth, I define bold love. So, let's be as loving and forgiving as we are true. Right? So verse 5 the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He said, what you're asking us to do is hard. We're supposed to be true, and yet we're supposed to be loving and forgiving. Make us supermen, is what the, the disciples are saying to Jesus. Jesus says, no, you don't need great big faith. You just need small faith in a big God. Look at what he says. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus says, you don't need great big faith. You just need small faith in a big God. If you had faith like a mustard seed, that was kind of a traditional saying of the Jews. Just have faith like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed that they would have known about. If you would just have that kind of faith in the right thing, 
or the right person. If you would just have that small faith in an all-powerful God, you will do miraculous things, Jesus says. You will say to that mulberry tree, be uprooted and die and be planted in the sea and live. You will do miraculous things. A black mulberry tree in the Middle East could live upwards of 600 years. It had this deep, extensive root system that even a tornado couldn't uproot. Jesus says, with faith, with your small steps of faith, you'll see this large tree uprooted and die and be born again in the sea. That's ministry. That's what we do in ministry. Unless God draws a man, it's impossible. Yet look around at us. Look around in the room here that there are so many of us here who have been uprooted and died and been born again. You are each one of you who know Christ, who have come to know him and are born again. You are each one of you a mulberry tree. That's what you are. You're each a miracle of new birth in salvation. So we take small steps of faith in a big God who can transform lives. Well, I was 25 years old when Libba and I moved to... uh, to Baton Rouge. I was a banker in Austin before that, and uh, we had a friend over in Baton Rouge that was on staff there with Young Life, and he kept calling me every year saying, Mike, you need to come to Baton Rouge. You need to go on Young Life staff. And I said, John, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I've never done Young Life. I've never been to a Young Life club with a bunch of high school kids. I don't think you want me. He said, I want you. I want you to come to Baton Rouge. And, uh, and so we gave up the American dream. And said, we're going we're gonna to go. And we made that little small step of faith. Libba was pregnant at the time that we made that decision. We had a two-year-old, Taylor. And, uh, and so we waited around Austin uh, long enough, really for three weeks later, when Libba had a baby, Travis was three weeks old when we moved. So we loaded up the U-Haul with all of our little worldly possessions and the next-door neighbor's cat <laughs> in the U-Haul. I don't know how that happened. And we took off. <laughs> And went to Baton Rouge. And we said, God, we're going to trust you. We're going to trust what you've got. We didn't know anybody except this one couple. We didn't know, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was getting into. And that was 30 years of ministry, 30 years ago. And God has never failed us. Not one time. And then we mailed the cat back. So <laughs> be encouraged. Not really. We didn't mail the cat. We had some friends bring the cat back. So, small faith in a big God. This is not God saying, I'm going to help you do magic tricks, okay? That's not what he's after here. That's not the point. It's trusting God to show up when you take those small steps of faith that God has put on your heart. That's what this is about. When you and your boyfriend or your fiance decide that uh, you're going to live in purity until you get married, till your wedding day, that small step. Maybe it's when, uh, when you and your spouse have had a fight and you know it's your turn and you need to move toward them. That's a small step of faith that God would show up. Maybe it's in your giving that you would give sacrificially to something and go, God, I need you to show up with that, with what I'm doing with my money. Maybe it's just getting up in the morning and making your bed and folding your clothes. Just a, a small step of discipline. Say, I'm going to be disciplined in my life. 
Maybe it's getting up early, 30 minutes early, and saying, I'm going to spend time in the Word. I'm going to let it wash over me. Over me. I'm, going to let, I'm going to immerse myself right here for that time. Maybe it's being part of our bridge builders here, that you would say, I'm going to go and I'm going to enter into relationship with somebody of a different race than me, and I'm going to see if God and trust that God will show up in that. Maybe it's simply walking next door to your neighbors that you really don't know very well at all that are your neighbors and take them an extra lasagna that you made. Say, I'm going to take a step of faith there. You see, I really believe Jesus is inviting you to trust him. He's inviting you to trust him. Maybe it's saying yes to serving with our kids in Sunday school. Maybe it's that going and working with teenagers or college students. Maybe it's moving your parents in with you when they get older and get elderly. I don't know what it is for you, but God is saying to your heart, take a step of faith and I'm going to show up. Small faith in a big God. So that's trait number three. The final thing here is in verses seven through 10, Jesus gives us an illustration. Look at verse 7 to 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the fold or from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that, we, that you were commanded, Say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what it was our duty to do. So here's a picture of ministry. The picture of ministry is plowing fields and tending sheep. That's us. We're just tilling the soil, planting seeds in men's hearts. We're just weeding. We're just taking care of kids. We're just nurturing the sheep. But we don't give the servant fame because he does what was commanded. We do what the master tells us to do. Well, the Roman Empire, there were about five million slaves at the height of the empire, and most of those slaves came about because they were a conquered people from other countries. Well, that's us as well. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's all I am. Is I'm just a humble servant by the grace of God in the kingdom of Christ. That's all. The term there for servant is the word doulos in Greek, and it means an under rower. It's the first person that would die on these big, huge Greek ships. The first people that would die were the under rowers, the men down on the very bottom of the ship that had these big oars going out, and they would row. So the first ones, if a ship was rammed, that would die were those guys. It was the lowest rung on the food chain. That's the word, servant. If you saw the movies um, Ben-Hur, maybe the movie Troy, if you didn't see any of those, maybe for us Christian folks, you saw The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Pretty decent movie, by the way. Big, huge ship in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader had under rowers that were, that were in that ship. That was the picture. So that's all we are. We're just servants. Well, we've had, uh, for the last two years at our house, we've had three caregivers who have been coming over to our house to help us take care of our, our parents. And uh, we've had parents living with us now for uh, about six, six and a half years. And uh, my dad moved in with us two years ago because he had a stroke. And so we've been taking care of him. And it's, uh, it was quite a, a journey 
to do that. And he passed away just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but we had these three caregivers that, were, that came into our house and they kind of rotated through our house and they helped us so that Libba and I could figure out how to do life. And uh, they were sweet, sweet, still are, very sweet friends, sweet people. They were caregivers for, for my dad. And they'd come in and they would care for him and for Jane, Libba's mom. Um, but with my dad, they did things that were really, really hard um, to clean him, uh, to change him, to feed him, because he had Alzheimer's, and he had had Alzheimer's for about nine years. And so, uh, so they did things that were really, really challenging and, and really difficult. Uh, well, a few days before my dad passed away, um, one of the ladies who had been taking care of my dad uh, during that day's name was Alice. And, uh, and I, it was late at night. I walked Alice out to her car, um, and I just told her thanks. I just said, Alice, thanks for coming alongside us. Thanks for coming alongside me and, and my dad, and thanks for loving him well and uh, doing the hard things. And, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, I was just doing what you hired me to do. I was just doing my job. And she didn't mean that like begrudgingly at all. She was like, I was just doing what I was supposed to do. And that was her spirit. And she did it gladly. And that's, that's our attitude as well. Because of the overwhelming grace that's been given to me, I'm only doing what is a logical response to my loving God and King. So, how do you know if you're hitting the sweet spot? When it comes to golf, you just you feel it, you can sense it. In discipleship, what is it that we need to feel when it comes to that? Jesus gives us four things. And he tells us, as men and women who are going to step into leadership at some point, he says, are we living true? Are we showing divine love and forgiveness in the midst of living true? Are we stepping out with small faith in a big God? And are we serving with humility and a great love for our King? Is that what we're doing? I'm convinced that if we do those things, that it'll feel, it'll be right. It'll be right. Well, we get to celebrate communion and we get to remember the one who came and lived this out in front of us and did it perfectly. It says of Jesus that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we get to celebrate that now. I would encourage you to take a few moments to prepare your hearts I'd encourage you to look at your relationships. Think on that. Is there anyone who has a call against you? Is there anyone that you have a call against that you need to make those things right with? I'd encourage you maybe to not take communion in that situation, that you would then go to those people and make those things right before you come and take communion at another time. Or maybe there's just sin and things that you need to work through with the Lord for a few moments before we take communion. would give you some time to do that as well. Then when you hear music played by our worship team, as we do from the front, the front rows come first and follow suit. And take the elements, go back to your seats, and then we will all partake of communion together. Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you that, uh, that you've given us your word to encourage our hearts. You've given us our word to show us a standard but you said we want you folks who are supposed to be leading others to impact the world by making disciples to be true, to be loving, to have small faith in a big God, to step out in ways that would say we trust you, God, to take what we're doing.
Lord, thank you that you also sent your son and he lived that out perfectly and that we can now come to him as, as humble servants doing only what you've called us to do. Father, because you sent your son to earth to give us that perfect example that Christ would come to serve and not to be served and that he would give his life as a ransom. Lord, thanks for the opportunity to be together in community that we can come together to celebrate that and to remember that. We lift up these next moments to you in Christ's name, amen.